All right, Romans 15, 15. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for, for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the, to the saints from Macedonia and Achaia, have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they, also, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what have, has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. This morning we're starting a series in the book of Romans, and I want to give a little bit of an overview of the entire book uh, today, and then we will jump into verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 next week. But before I get started, let me, let me pray for us. Lord God, thank you for this letter that you inspired, directed Paul to write to the church in Rome. Thank you for the way that your spirit has preserved it. Lord, I pray that it would be instructive, challenging, encouraging. That it would be a spiritual blessing to us, just as Paul intended to be a spiritual blessing to the Romans with his words. I pray that you would open our hearts to hear the words that are written here. That you would, by your spirit, lead us into truth and guide us in the ways that you want us to uh, apply it in our own lives. I pray that we would understand the gospel more clearly and more deeply, having studied this book. And I pray that we would um, live accordingly. pray all this in your name. Amen. Augustine, the... Church father, after years of living for his own selfish ambitions and sexual passions, 
had begun hearing the preaching of the gospel by Ambrose. And at age 32, Augustine sat in a garden, solitary, by himself, deeply disturbed and struggling within himself about the life he lived and the life he was being moved towards. As he sat there, he heard a voice saying to him, pick up and read. And he took this voice to be a divine command. And so he rushed to where he knew a Bible was at. And he picked it up. And he read the first passage that his eyes focused on. Romans 13, 13 through 14. And it said, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And in that moment, through that passage, Christ claimed victory over the heart of the most influential Christian pastor and theologian and thinker this side of the New Testament. Martin Luther served as a monk in the Augustinian order over a thousand years later. No monk worked harder to prove his righteousness than Luther. But Luther was still tormented and angry with God. See, it was the righteousness of God that bothered him. He, he wondered what Paul had meant when he wrote in Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God was revealed in the gospel. He, he took it to mean that he took it to mean that uh, this righteousness was a reminder that God is justified in punishing the unrighteous. But God would use that passage to unlock all of Scripture for him. For, for Luther, in his own words, wrote this. He said, night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby, through grace and sheer mercy, he justified us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a whole new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. 200 years later, John Wesley found himself leading a group of friends nicknamed the Holy Club. No one studied more than they did. No one confessed more than they did. No one served more than they did. And no one sinned less than they did. He sailed from England to Georgia to serve as a missionary for two years. But he came back profoundly disillusioned by God and by Christianity. A few months later, being dragged to a church meeting, not wanting to go, but someone dragging him along, Someone there at the meeting was reading Luther's preface to the book of Romans. And in Wesley's words, this is what happened. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I didn't trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. 
and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. You see, the book of Romans has had a profound impact on the greatest Christian thinkers, pastors, and theologians. And if we had time and we had knowledge, I'm sure countless other believers throughout the centuries. And of course, of course it has. Because as we'll find, Romans as a book is all about the gospel. William Tyndale, who first translated the Bible into English and then who smuggled the Bible into England with the help of friends so that people could read the Bible in their own language, in the English language, for the first time, for themselves. And who died for doing that very thing. He called Romans a pure description of the gospel. A light and a way in unto the whole of Scripture. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear, we ought to expect that studying this letter for the first time, or whether it's the 50th time, will have a profound impact on us. And that task is what we're setting out to do this morning. But before we get into the weeds of Romans, I want to take some time and kind of give an overview of the field, if you will. This morning I want to introduce Romans by answering a few questions for you. I want to answer why was Romans written. I want to answer what is Romans about. And I want to answer how should Romans change us. Why was Romans written? What is Romans about? And why, or how, I should say, should Romans change us? So the first question is this. Why was Romans written? Let me give you a primer on the situation. Acts 2, right? So Jesus lives, dies, raised, risen from the dead, ascends to heaven. And then we get to Acts 2. And the Holy Spirit comes down and comes on the disciples. And the disciples begin to preach to the masses in Jerusalem. Among the crowds in Acts 2.10, it says that there were visitors from Rome. So there are Jews who are from Rome who traveled to Jerusalem. And they hear Peter preach the gospel for the first time. And they're saved. And we know from Acts 8 that a persecution happens and that Believers are scattered from Jerusalem all over the known world. And best that we can tell, some of these believers made their way back to Rome with the gospel. And they begin to spread it. And the gospel spreads primarily, but not exclusively there among Jews. In Acts 18, verse 2, it notes that Paul runs into two Jewish Christians, Priscilla and Aquila. When he's in Corinth. And the reason that they are in Corinth rather than in Rome, which is where they're from, is because the emperor Claudius has expelled the Jews from Rome. Now we know from other ancient historians, they know that arguments among Jews in Rome had escalated around this Christus character. Around the idea of the Christ. Who is the Christ? And, and these 
arguments had become violent and they even be turned into riots so that in AD 49, Claudius had expelled all the Jews, every single one of them, out of the city. Y'all have to leave. So the Roman church, among whom the Gentiles had been a minority, that had been mostly Jewish Christians with a few Gentile Christians, is all of a sudden just a few Gentiles and no Jews at all because they all had to leave the city. But by the time that this letter, the letter to Rome, is written around AD 57, some of the Jews had returned. We know that because later on in the letter, Paul addresses Priscilla and Aquila, his old friends, directly in Romans. But far fewer Jews have returned than had left. And so the dynamic of the church has changed, and it's primarily a Gentile church now with a a minority group of Jews. Now, that's the situation, you're like, okay, that's a great history lesson, Cody. Well, I don't understand why that, that matters. Well, it's going to matter for why Paul is writing this letter. And it's hard to pinpoint just one reason that he's writing. But we know from Romans 15, what I read, that Paul is planning to visit Rome. And it seems that this letter is meant to prime the Roman church for his visit, to prepare them for his coming, for what interaction is going to happen there. To kind of introduce himself, if you will. In Romans 1.12, Paul speaks that they might mutually encourage one another when he comes. That's what his desire is. And so, so what, are, what, are, what is this mutual encouragement? What is the needs that each of them had? Well, I think, I think first Paul needs support. And he says that pretty clearly in the text on multiple occasions. He needs support for his missionary journeys. Paul has this burning desire to spread the gospel where the gospel has never been spread before. And he's gone all over what we would call Asia Minor, spreading the gospel, and it's in all of the major cities. And so he feels like that region is done. I need to go to a new region. As long as I have breath in my lungs, I've got to continue to spread this gospel. And so he sets his eyes on Spain. The gospel hasn't gone to Spain. And Rome is in between. And so he has this desire to go to Spain and to make a stop in Rome in order to be encouraged and to encourage them and to, frankly, to get financial support for his journey to carry the gospel into Spain. So that's Paul's need. But the Romans have a need too. It seems... As we read through the text, and as we'll read through Romans, it seems that they need help in bringing greater unity between the Gentiles, the Gentile Christians, and the Jewish Christians that exist in the church. There's some some tension that's happening there, some, some lack of clarity about that cultural difference. You see, God has unified these believers through His Son, but now they need some help in how to tangibly live out that unity. And so, Paul intends in this letter to begin to set the stage for meeting these two needs. And he intends to do that through the third and probably the primary reason I think that Paul is writing to the Romans And that is in order to clarify his gospel theology. 
Hey, if I'm going to receive support from you guys, if they're going to be moved to support me, they need to understand what the gospel is clearly and why it's so important that I would need to spread it to Spain. And if, and if I'm going to help them to live in unity with one another, they need to understand clearly what the gospel is that has brought them together as believers that, that is more important than their Jew and Gentile differences so that... They can live in unity as a church. So by writing this letter, he is establishing his credentials for why he ought to be supported. And he's laying the groundwork for the church to find unity. And so that's a little bit of why Romans is written. But what is Romans about? What is it about? What is it about? And as I've said... There are a lot of different themes we're going to see in the book of Romans, but the number one theme, the, the, the theme that above all other themes, the theme that ties all of everything else together is the gospel. And we find it structured in Romans in two primary parts. First, in chapters 1 through 11, we're going to see what I'm calling gospel belief. And Paul, through, through one, uh, chapter 1 through 11, he's going to explain what is gospel belief. How does the gospel affect the way that we believe, the things that we believe? And then in chapters 12 through 16, he's going to explain what I call gospel behavior. How should the gospel then be applied into the way that you, church, are behaving? To, to their particular situation, we have this great diagram that was going to go on TV that, that Amanda made, but I'm going to have to explain it to you now. Okay. So imagine three concentric circles. Inside the very first, the very middle circle, we can call that the gospel. That's how God loves and saves rebel sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you don't know, that's the gospel in like three seconds. How God loves and saves rebel sinners, like you and me, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel proper. Paul in Romans 1.16, he calls it the power of God for salvation to those who believe. The second circle, the circle right outside of the gospel is what we call, what I call gospel belief. These are the truths that they aren't the gospel proper. They're not the historical event of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but they are... Uh, closely related to the gospel. Paul will often use this question and answer format. As we go through the book, you'll see this. Either he'll imply a question or he'll outright ask it. He'll say something like, well, should we then go, go on sinning? No, by no means. And then he'll explain why. And each time he does that, he'll anchor that answer back in the gospel. He'll say, because of the gospel then this is the thing we need to believe. So as we go through the first 11 chapters, we'll see that in chapters 1 and 2, Paul will focus on themes about righteousness and judgment and God's wrath. And chapters 3 through 5, he'll talk about faith and law and salvation. And 6 through 8, he'll talk about sin and sanctification and the, the work of the Holy Spirit. And in chapters 9 through 11, he'll talk about uh, sovereignty and mercy and God's people. And he'll tie all of those things back to the gospel. You see, whether you realize it or not, 
You view the world in your life and everyone else through a pair of lenses. And I don't mean like, you know, you got sunglasses on or whatever. These are uh, figurative lenses, if you will. Everyone views the world and their life and everyone else through a pair of lenses. And for Paul and for the Bible, the only set of lenses through which ultimately we conceive the world correctly is the gospel. To the degree that the gospel is the lenses through which you see everything is the degree to which you see the world accurately. I remember the first time uh, I put on glasses, I was getting headaches in school, and so they said, hey, maybe you need glasses. Um, Every time we would do the, I don't think they still do this in school, they would take us all in and line us up and then they'd have the, um, uh, the letter chart or whatever, and they'd do the test. Okay, tell me what the... Of course, it doesn't really... It doesn't make sense because I can hear what every kid in front of me is answering, right? And so by the time I step up to, you know... And you're at school, so you're trained to get the test. You're trying to get the test right, right? That's what you do at school. Get the answers right at all costs. And so I keep hearing people saying all the letters. So by the time I get up there, subconsciously, I already know what all the letters are. So it doesn't matter if I can see them or not. I just repeat exactly what the letters are. And, oh, 2020 vision, great. Wow, it's better than 2020 vision. But then I'm in class and I'm getting these headaches all the time. And so they say, hey, maybe you need glasses. Like, I always get the test right. 100%. So they take me to the eye doctor. You know, I can't cheat that test. And they find out, oh, yeah, yeah, you can't see. That's why. And so I, I, I remember the first time I was at Lens Crafters in West Ridgeville in Topeka, Kansas. I put on my new set of glasses, my first set of glasses, and I remember looking across through the store, across the kind of the atrium at the the stores, across the way in the signs, the big glowing signs above the stores. And I was like, hey, I can read that sign. That's how everyone else sees. That's amazing, right? Like, I had no idea that you were supposed to actually, always was baffled me. Like, why do we have these giant signs? No one can even read them. They're not big enough. I was like like in eighth grade, so I mean, what do you do? My point is this. When the gospel becomes the lenses through which you see the world, things all of a sudden become a lot more clear than they were before. You can see things as they actually were meant to be seen and understood. As we think about everything we believe about God and mankind and the world, all of those things must be tethered back to and centered on the gospel. And when we begin to see things more clearly, then we can act accordingly. I still, to this day, believe that the reason that I was so bad at baseball is because I couldn't see the ball. It's hard to hit a baseball when you can't see it coming in. It may also be because I was really uncoordinated, but. But when we can see things clearly, we can begin to act accordingly. And the third ring in those circles, so the middle ring is the gospel, the gospel proper, the actual gospel. The second is the gospel belief. And then the third ring is gospel behavior. 
There are ways of living that are anchored in gospel belief, which should be anchored in the gospel. So gospel behavior is the gospel applied, if you will. Romans 12, 1 and 2, that is the turning point in the letter, the turning point in the book that shifts primarily from gospel belief to primarily gospel behavior. And it says this, it says, Therefore, therefore by God's mercies, or because of the gospel beliefs described in chapters 1 through 11 that originate in the mercy of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says, present your bodies as living sacrifices. All of your life, because of the gospel, all of your life ought to be surrendered to God. Not in death, but in life. How you behave. And then he says, and be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So as you believe these gospel truths, as you have these gospel beliefs more and more, your behaviors will change. And these new behaviors will become second nature to you. It will, God's will will become reflexive. You will be able to test and approve what is the will of God, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For Paul, to the Romans, the primary manifestation of how this works out is the unifying impact amongst believers and a missional impulse from believers. Do you get that? And so here's my book of Romans in a sentence. If you want to just... This is my best, my best effort at putting all of the book of Romans in one short and concise sentence, which is difficult to do. Here it is. The gospel must shape our church's beliefs and behaviors. The gospel, it must shape our church's beliefs and behaviors. You see, we often think about the gospel as the starting line of Christianity. You know, it's like it's it's the, the blocks, you know, and you you just, we're just trying to get someone in the blocks, and then the gun goes off, and then they cross the starting line, and that's it, and then they and then and then you move on to other bigger, deeper, greater things of Christianity. Good job, you got over the, you got you got through the gospel. Way to go! You started the race. But that I don't think is how Paul thinks about it. I don't think that's how Scripture thinks about it. What Paul is saying is that the gospel is not just the starting line, but it's the very track that you run on as a believer. In fact, it's not just the track that you run on. It's not just the starting line. It is the art and science of running itself. If you want to run as a Christian, the gospel is all of it. It's how you do it. It's where you do it. It's where you start and it's where you end. The gospel makes all the difference. Everything we believe and everything we do ought to be shaped by by the good news of Jesus Christ. Understand though, and and I want you to understand this, the farther out that we move from the gospel proper, as we go out into gospel belief and as we move out into gospel practice, the, the greater, uh, perhaps, deviation you will find amongst Christians. As we get farther away from the cross, 
and the resurrection, Christians may believe slightly different things. Every time we shift from the gospel to gospel belief, there's or gospel belief to gospel behavior, there's there's a line of, of reasoning or thought, and and sometimes things can uh, get off a little bit. It, our mental limitations are one way. Sometimes it's our moral limitations as well that can cause us to think wrongly. The reality is that our mind will find a way to justify the things that our hearts want. And so sometimes we can know the gospel, and yet we can get off just a little bit on a, on a particular gospel belief, or we can get off just a little bit on how to apply the gospel in our life, because one, our, our mental capacity isn't, isn't, we're not omniscient, right? We don't know everything. And, and also our hearts are deceptive and sinful, and sometimes they can justify an action, and we can think in our head, oh, that makes total sense, but really our hearts are, are deceiving us. So that's something that we need to be aware of. And it's something that obviously the Roman church is experiencing between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And some may say, if we're, if we're truly unified by the gospel, then shouldn't there be no difference? No differences should exist in any kind of belief or any. Every Christian should just think, yeah, that's exactly how you should act every single time. And, and my answer to that question is a resounding no. No, that's, that's, that's not a logical uh, a thing to think. Two Christians can believe the exact same gospel, and, and, and they could, in a particular situation, uh, draw a different conclusion or belief or behavior. That, that is true. The gospel brings about unity, it doesn't bring about uniformity. The gospel allows us to link arms around the essentials and have grace and charity towards one another on the non-essentials. It helps us to recognize when an essential has been abandoned and when we ought not to unify with that person because of that. It gives us grace and patience for people throughout that process because we recognize that we've not only not that we've not always gotten every gospel belief and gospel behavior right ourselves. Am I right? Now I would imagine if you're anything like me, if you've been a Christian very long, there are things that you've believed. And over time, as you've read scripture more and as you've understood the gospel better, you've gone, ooh, I was a little bit wrong on that. I kind of feel like I should go back and tell the people I told that this is, this is, this is what it is. And like, yeah, I was, when I said that, I was wrong a little bit. And so we know that we've all been there. And so the gospel gives us grace and charity towards others as we all figure this out. But if we remain tethered to the gospel, friends, if we have the gospel right and we go back to the gospel every single time, we continue to roll over our lives and refine it by the gospel, continue to look at every single anger, angle through the lenses of the gospel, we will grow. And God will guide us, recenter us.
That's what Romans is about. But how should it change us? Clearly, I hope that as we go through the book of Romans, that you gain a greater understanding, a deeper understanding of the gospel. All it means for us. But how should that gospel clarity change us particularly? Well, I I have two goals. I have two goals for you, Proclaim, as we go through the book of Romans. And they relate to Paul's reasons for writing the book as well. You see, remember remember that he hoped that they would help to send him to plant churches in Spain. There's a, there's a missions element towards those who are not yet believers. And, and he also wanted to help them in their interactions with one another. That, that there's this unity element amongst believers. And I believe that the, the more deeply we grasp the gospel, it should produce those two things in us. It should produce unity and it should produce mission. Unity because the gospel humbles us, right? It eliminates the pride that often divides us. It reminds us that we've received far more grace from God than than, than we're ever called to extend to another person, ever. Mission because the gospel motivates us. It gives us love for others as we realize the sober reality of our eternal, our eternity. Sorry. It gives us love for others as we realize the sober reality of of their eternity, eternal uh, separation apart from Christ. But it gives us hope as we recognize that if God can save me, if God can save you, he can save anyone. And friends, if you understand the gospel correctly, and we'll get into this in the coming weeks. But I want you to know, you are not more savable than anyone else. You have done nothing to make yourself more savable than anyone else in the whole world. I was not more savable. But it was a complete act of the mercy of Christ on our behalf. And so those are the goals I have for Proclaim. That God would unite Proclaim through the gospel. And that God would spread the gospel through Proclaim. That God would unite Proclaim through the gospel. And that God would spread the gospel through Proclaim. Practically, what does that mean? Well, we plan to preach the first half of Romans from now until this fall. Until Labor Day. Right around Labor Day. And we plan to preach the second half from Easter 2022 to the same time. That's the plan. And my desire is that when we get to the end of the book of Romans in August 2022, a little less than a year and a half, that not only has Proclaim grown in unity as a church family, Not only has Proclaim grown as a church family because we are moved to share the gospel with people in our life. And by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, God saves them. My hope is that we find ourselves a part of supporting another church planter 
who's going out to plant a new church in a new place, just as Paul hoped for the Romans to support him on his way to Spain. That's my hope. That's my prayer. Would you pray with me over this next year that God would use us in those ways? Would you put that down as a regular prayer every week that God would bring unity and that God would move us to mission around the gospel? F.F. Bruce, the New Testament scholar, said, There's no saying what may happen when people begin to study the letter to the Romans. So let those who have read thus far be prepared for the consequences of reading farther. You've been warned, he says. You've been warned. Are you prepared for the consequences of reading farther? The the preparation that's needed isn't one of mind. It's not, oh, I need to learn all of these things. The preparation isn't one of hands or feet. It's not like, oh man, I need to make sure I'm prepared to get to church on Sunday so I can hear the sermon about Romans. That's not where the difficulty is. The real preparation, the real battleground is preparation of the heart. That's where it's going to happen. That's where it's going to happen. Are you willing to come to this letter with your hearts wide open to whatever God wants to speak to you through his word? Are you willing to say to God, before we even look at Romans 1.1, are you willing to pray, God, whatever you put in here, even if I don't like it, and I promise, I'm quite confident, there are going to be some things in Romans that you will not like, okay? Because there's some things in Romans that I don't like, I didn't like the first time I read it. But whatever you say, God, I believe. I surrender to it. Whatever you say, I will do. I'm confident that if you put your heart, if you prepare your heart and you put it in that position, that you will find the things that at first seem offensive to you become quite comforting. And the things at first that seem shocking to you become the things that are most soothing in the book of Romans. So this is your last chance. If you're not here next week, I'll know why. Just joking. If you need the chicken exit, but if you're willing, then let's get prepared. Let's get prepared for what God wants to speak to us, church, through this book. So as we come into a time of communion, here's what I'd like to do. If you, like I said earlier, if you're not a believer, if your faith is not in the gospel, right? That's by God's love and grace through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that, that I, a rebel, am saved. And I would ask you that you would not participate in communion because communion is only for those who have entrusted their lives into the things that that communion represents, Right? But I ask that you would pray that God would open your heart as we go through the book of Romans to what the gospel is and what it means 
for you. But if you are a believer, I, I would ask that before you take communion, that you would pray, Lord, you, that, 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 that the same God who would give his son, surrender his son for your salvation, that you would surrender your hearts to him and to his word as we go through Romans. Would you take a moment to pray that right now?